It's my privilege to um, bring the Word of God this morning. I've been looking for an opportunity to do this because this is, um, this is really going to be a part two message from a, a message that I preached um, back in early March where I foolishly was overconfident and thought surely I could preach a message that had eight points and I could get through all of it. And the Lord humbled me and I only got to five. So this is an opportunity I've been waiting for to really finish the message, and um, the message was uh, on the topic of servanthood, servanthood in the body of Christ. And uh, maybe I'll I'll do a review of those points before I do that. I'm just going to maybe, by way of introduction, just orient us around this concept of servanthood a little bit first. On November 11th, uh, 1947, Winston Churchill delivered a speech to the British House of Commons And in this speech, um, he was discussing the nature of Western democracy and how um, the British Parliament was not set up so that it would be Parliament that would rule, but instead, Parliament was set up in the British system of government so that the people would rule through Parliament. And and it was in this um, speech that Churchill made one of his more famous quotations. He's quoted a lot. This is one of them that has made the rounds. He said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in, the world, in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. And uh, I like that quote. It's, Churchill was uh, really doing in his inimitable way was capturing the beauty and the ugliness of democracy. It's both and, because on the one hand, democracy upholds freedom, it holds, uh, upholds liberty in society, gives every person a voice in the political process, and at the same time, um, since democracy ultimately relies on people, and people are faulty, and people are fallen, and people are sometimes or often corrupt, it's never going to be a perfect form of government. It's not until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and establishes kingdom on this earth that there will be a perfect form of government where you have one person who, who rules in complete righteousness and faithfulness and truth. And until that time comes, there is no form of man-made government that is going to be perfect. Uh, but at the same time, what Churchill said is true. I'll take democracy over every other form of government there is. Um, the same could be said for, um, for our present system of economics. We could say, borrowing Churchill once again, capitalism. Capitalism is the worst form of economics except for all those other forms that have been tried. And I think about it. And on the one hand, capitalism is responsible for lifting up over a billion people out of poverty just in the last 20 years alone. It's built on the same principles of liberty and uh, freedom, economic freedom, personal economic freedom as democracy is. It promotes labor. It fosters hard work. It promotes private sector innovation. It, uh, it promises the, the possibility of, of, of um, real reward for those who are willing to take risk onto themselves for the sake of an idea. And all those things are good things. And in that sense, I think it's true. Capitalism is far superior to any other economic system that man's tried. I'm grateful to live in a 
country and in a society where I have the freedom to do with the, the money that I have earned from, from my labor. I have the freedom to use that, that money as I deem fit to provide for my family, uh, to use uh, excess money that the Lord has blessed me with through my labors, um, to, uh, to be generous to others, to, to invest in things that are maybe temporal forms of happiness but are, are nevertheless there to enjoy. I mean, all those things... Uh, Capitalism, free economics, um, gives to us. If I don't have um, money because it's been taken away from me in order to distribute to other people, that's less money that I have to freely be generous with. I think um, Churchill, in another quote, he said, the, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessing. The inherent virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of miseries. I think it's true. But if all that is the, the, the light side of capitalism, there is a negative aspect to it. And we just have to recognize that. It may promote hard work. It may promote innovation. It also encourages greed. It encourages selfishness. These things are kind of built into the system. What's more, the, the, the system encourages you to spend your money instead of save your money. When's the last time you ever heard a report of economic health in our country in which they, they, they judged the health of our economy by how much people were able to put away into their savings? It's not how we talk about health. We don't talk about the desire for wage growth in terms of the ability for more people to, to save more money. We talk about it in terms of the more people earn, the more people can push that money back into the system, which is why economic health is based upon things like revenue, things like cash flow. That's what we talk about when we say how healthy is our economy. In fact, our current economic situation, I think in part, not the totality of it, there are lots of factors into where we are as a nation, where we are um, in terms of of, uh, our our economic picture, but part of it has to do with the last two years, people were not spending as much because people were not going out as much, not spending their money. And then the government gave a lot of money out in the form of stimulus checks, hoping that people would spend that money. And in actually what they did is a large amount of people actually saved that money. They didn't do what the government hoped that they would do. What capitalism has created is a society where there are proprietors on the one hand, there are consumers on the other. Proprietors are constantly in an effort to market their products to consumers, and they are willing to use any strategy necessary. Ultimately, this marketing is designed to feed off of people's wants, to feed off of people's desires. It's, it's designed to get you to believe. The vast majority of what, what is marketed to you is designed to get you to believe that what you want and you desire is an absolute necessity in your life. You need that thing, that riding lawnmower or whatever. You need it. You need that new phone because a one-year-old phone just can't cut it in today's world. How can you take a picture without three lenses on your camera? Oh, the travesty. And that's, that's where we are. And this is where it intersects with the church. 
The church has picked up on this marketing, this capitalism idea and consumerist idea. Church leaders desire large congregations. They desire wider influence. They desire bigger productions. And so they market their churches in such a way that churchgoers become consumers. And in a certain sense, the church that's at large in the United States is really becoming a purveyor of goods and services just like any other business. And churchgoers are treated just like consumers. And many Christians have embraced this, that they, uh, that they should approach church just like it is a business, and they should approach church just like they approach any other business as a consumer. And that becomes the predominant way that people choose and evaluate whether or not they come and attend at one particular church or another. They're asking questions like, okay, do they play the music that I like? Do they, um, do they talk about the topics that I find interesting? Do they ask very much of me? Do they make me feel uncomfortable? Do, have they asked me to do anything? Because if they do, I'm out of here. I'm off to the next church. I want to be comfortable. I want to be satisfied. I want to be pleased. And that becomes the evaluative measure of a church in a wide swath of today's culture. Here's the deal. Make no mistake about it. The church is not a business. Okay? The church is not a business. Christians are not consumers. The church is a collection of former consumers who have been saved from their sin and have been called to a life of selfless service for God and for others. Let me say that again. The church is a collection of former consumers who have been saved from their sin by the Lord Jesus Christ, added to the church, and are now called to a life of selfless service to God and to others. That's what a Christian is. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus told his disciples, and they had just been squabbling over who was the greatest. They were, they were vying and for positions of um, influence and power and prestige. And he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That is what it means to be a disciple. Last of all, servant of all. That is the high calling of the Christian. Every believer in Jesus Christ is called to a life of servanthood, a life where we set aside our own wants, we set aside our own desires that we might meet the needs of others. That's our calling as Christians. And if that's our calling, then we really need to understand what kind of servants God wants us to be. What are the, what are the characteristics of effective service in the body of Christ? What, what are the characteristics of servanthood? And uh, when I preached this last time, I, I got to the first five. And uh, let me just briefly review these. First and foremost, servanthood needs to be gospel-enabled. Gospel-enabled servanthood. That's the front door. Nothing matters more than that. Because gospel-enabled servanthood is, is service that is 
made free by being reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer, if you are, have not been made right with the Lord, you cannot serve God. You cannot serve two masters, God said. And so you have to be reconciled to God first and then come service. So if you're a believer and, or an unbeliever or maybe you're try, still trying to figure things out, figure out this Christianity thing, but you're involved in ministry, you need to take a step back and, and uh, be made right with the Lord first. Because this is the front door. This gospel-enabled service. The second characteristic that we talked about was servanthood that is Christ-like. Christ-like. And what this is really talking about is, um, is that when we talk about being a Christian, what we're really talking about is being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are followers of Christ. We are learners. That's what a disciple means. And if we are to be Christ-like, and if throughout your entire Christian life, the ups and the downs of your experience as you, as you uh, try to obey the word of God and grow in your faith and go through the ups and downs of the struggles of, of, uh, of the experience of life on a fallen world, there should be an upward trajectory where it's called sanctification, where God is making you more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's part of the, the, the sanctification process, if you want to be a follower of Christ, you need to understand that Christ was a servant. It was in Matthew 20, chapter 20, verse 26, that Jesus said, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be like Christ, you have to understand that Christ was a servant. So it starts at the gate of the gospel, and then at its following Christ as he serves, you serve. And that leads to a third characteristic of servanthood, and that is a servanthood that is leader-equipped, leader-equipped servant. And what this is talking about is that uh, God wants a fully functional church. He wants a church that is mature, a church where that, that is an organism in which every member of the church is actively participating to serve one another, to do the work of the ministry, and so build itself up into maturity. That's what God desires for his church. And to, to make that happen, what he has done is he has given certain gifts to the church in the form of gifted uh, leaders, and teachers and preachers. He talks about this in Ephesians 4, where he has given gifts to the body. And the job of these teachers and leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so, part of being a servant and part of understanding what the call of servanthood is, is, is being under the teaching of gifted people who are there, who are given by God to equip you to serve. As they teach the Bible, as they instruct in the word, they are equipping you with the necessary um, spiritual resources to fulfill what God has called you to do in the body. A mature, growing, thriving Christian is someone who is faithfully serving for the sake of the whole church under the care of and teaching of gifted teachers and leaders. And that leads to a fourth characteristic. 
Not only leader-equipped, but spirit-enabled. And that is to say, if, if God has really called us to a life of service, then we can also expect that God has not left us without the spiritual resources to fulfill that calling. And so he has given the church gifts. 1 Peter 4.1 says that as each one has received a gift, employed and serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God... Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the Spirit has distributed gifts to every believer who has been added to the body of Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then God has given you at least one spiritual gift with which to use to build up the body of Christ. And sometimes these gifts overlap with natural skill sets and natural abilities. Uh, it's just the way that God works sometimes. Other times they don't. Uh, but but they, they differ from just your natural skills and abilities and that these are spirit-enabled skills, spirit-enabled gifts that are specifically designed to empower you to do effective ministry in the, the body of Christ to fulfill what he wants to see happen in the church was that this, the church matures as it serves itself. So if you're a new believer, one of your priorities should be to pray to the Lord, asking him to help you recognize how he's gifted you, and then to dive into ministry, see what works, see what fits, see where he's gifted you in those ways. And if you're a mature believer, you know how God's gifted you, then you make sure that you're engaging in ministry where you're utilizing how God has gifted you for ministry. It's all part of being effective servants in the body of Christ. And then fifthly, a fifth characteristic is servanthood that is character-driven. And that is to say that servanthood is, serving is not just something that we do, that's something that's external. There is an inward component to service. There is a heart dynamic that we need to be aware of. We need to understand and ask why we are serving. What is our motivation? Are we serving because we're, we feel guilty? Are we serving because um, we, we, we want to be noticed by people? We want people to see what we're doing and praise us. And those are wrong motivations to serve. And 1 Corinthians 13 underscores the primary and foundational motivation for service, and that is service that is done in love for other people. Paul talks about that. He says, I can do all these things. I can, I can speak in languages I don't know. I can prophesy. I can give my body to be burned up for the Lord. I can, I can give all that I have. I can do all those things for the sake of service, but I don't do it in love. It means nothing. So you have to understand the attitude that's there. The motivation. And the attitude matters as well. You don't want to serve in pride. Pride is a killer of service. Pride keeps you from serving because it makes you convinced that there are certain things that are just below you, what you can do. You know, I, I'll do that, but yeah, yeah, I, my skill sets are, are way above doing that menial task. That, that kills ministry. And then grumbling and complaining is something that we can do in our heart where we, we kind of serve on the outside, we do everything, we, we go through the motions, but on the inside we're saying, I don't have to like this. And we grumble and complain and we forget that serving is part of the sanctification process and where we're, while we were grumbling and complaining, we might meet somebody's needs externally, but there's no growth happening on the inside. We don't want that to happen. 
Character matters in service. It's not just what you do. I mean, you think back to the book of Micah, you think back to, uh, to God's uh, interactions with King Saul when he says, it's, it's not sacrifice that I desire, it's obedience that I desire. God's looking at the heart. So we, when we serve, we go through the gate of the gospel that enables us to serve in a right relationship with God. We want to be Christ-like servants. We want to serve in a way that that's fostered under gifted leaders and teachers and empowered by the Holy Spirit and driven by godly character. So that kind of catches us up to, um, to where, where we left off. So let's look at the sixth characteristic. The sixth characteristic is servanthood that is God-worshipping servanthood. God-worshipping servanthood. We use the word worship almost exclusively in the church to talk about singing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Singing is an important part of how we worship. It's beautiful, actually. It's a gift that the Lord's given. I love to sing. When I'm not preaching here, and, and uh, I, normally my role in the church is I'm, I'm singing. I'm leading music. I love doing that. Um, and, uh, and that's a way that God has given us to just kind of connect our our heads, what we understand about theology with our, our emotions and our, and our uh, affectations, our hearts. We, we sing together as a congregation, and it's a way for us to all speak the same thing at the same time, articulate our theology and song together. I mean, it's a gift from God. But I think we would be narrow-minded and narrow-focused to think that that's the only expression of, ch- of worship in the church, even when we gather. In fact, I'll even go as far as to say the primary expression of New Testament worship in the church is not singing. It's actually serving. It's actually serving. And before I go to the main passage for that, I just want to reinforce that and kind of show you that a little bit. When we read our English Bibles, uh, we often come across the, the word worship, and we just assume probably that it's, just, it's translating the same Hebrew or Greek word every single time, and it's not. There's a number of words in Greek and Hebrew that are translated in English as worship. There are words that uh, talk about bending over or even casting yourself down on the ground in kind of adject um, homage and, and reverence before God. And those are sometimes translated as worship in, in English. There are words that uh, speak of, of worship in terms of fear, of reverence for God, to fear the Lord is part of worship, and English Bible translations will translate that word at times as worship rather than fear. But interesting, there's a whole set of words in the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of worship in in the terminology of service. In Exodus 3, for instance, you remember Exodus 3 is um, a passage where Moses is um, being called by God to go back to Egypt and to lead Israel out of Egypt where he will redeem them by the blood of the Passover lamb and make them his people and enter into a covenant with him. And in verse 12, he's kind of reinforcing um, why Moses should go back, why he should have confidence. And the New American Standard says this, in, in the New American Standard Version, it says, he said, meaning God, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign that sh- that, uh, to you that it is I who have sent you. 
When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Now that word that is translated in English as worship is actually the Hebrew verb avad, which means not to worship, but to serve. You shall serve God, and that's how the ESV translates it. You shall serve God on this mountain. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, if you have your Bibles. Deuteronomy 10 is, is really the heart expression, uh, a summation of Israel's relationship with God in this uh, covenant that he had entered into at Sinai. And it really is expressing the fundamental relationship that Israel was to have. And he says, uh, beginning in, chap- in uh, chapter 10, verse 12, he says, And now, Israel... What does Yahweh your God require of you? But to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh which I am commanding you to do today for your good. In other words, to serve God, to serve God in an Old Testament setting, was a a comprehensive way of capturing what Israel's relationship with God was supposed to be like. It involved the sacrificial system, of course. That was at the center of their relationship with God. It enabled them to serve. But it involved fearing God. It involved walking in His ways, observing His decrees. It, It called for a total lifestyle of allegiance to God. That was what it meant to be an Israelite under the Old Covenant. Lifestyle of total allegiance to God. That's what it meant to be a servant of God in the Old Testament. David Peterson uh, has written an excellent uh, book on worship uh, called Engaging with God, and he summarizes this idea of worship um, through service in this way in the Old Testament. He says, The language of service implies that God is a great king, who requires faithfulness and obedience from those who belong to him. Israel's service in a cultic way, that is the sacrificial system, was to be understood as a particular expression of the total allegiance due to the Lord, who had set them free from slavery in Egypt to serve him exclusively. The ministry of priests and Levites in the cult was a a specialized form of that service to God. As well as having a Godward dimension, the priestly ministry functioned to assist the nation as a whole in its service to God. The Old Testament indicates in several ways that service to God and service to his people are interrelated. That is to say, if you were a priest in the Old Testament, your job was not just 100% vertical. As you offered those offerings to the Lord and were mediating between God and man, you were not just serving God, but you were enabling the entire nation to engage in service and thus worship to God. It wasn't just the priests who served. It was the entire nation that was called to serve God. And that service was, in fact, worship. Now, with that as a background, let's go to our text. Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, I know this is a familiar text to us. But uh, in Romans 12, starting in verse 1, 
Paul writes this, and again, I'm, I'm going to read out of the New American Standard just because it translates it in a, little, in, in a way that, that, uh, that, that's helpful for bringing out some of these words. Uh, but it's similar to the ESV. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, and the mercies of God are the mercies that, God has, er, that Paul has just outlined over the last 11 chapters of this book. It's the gospel of God's justifying grace that he offers to sinners and sinners appropriate by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the mercies of God. So he says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Spiritual service of worship. Literally, we could, we could translate that last phrase as, which is your reasonable or logical service to God. It is the reasonable response to what God has done for you in the gospel. What is that reasonable response? To offer your entire life as a sacrifice to God. Now, that brings up all the background of the Old Testament and the cultic system. It is the language of Leviticus. It is the language of Leviticus 1 and 2 in the burnt offering. In the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the burnt offering was the foundational offering that the worshiper in Israel would offer to the Lord. He would take an animal, he would bring it to the tabernacle or later the temple, he would slay the animal himself, he would quarter it and skin it, and then he would give the parts to the priest, and the entire animal would be offered on the altar, and it would go up and smoke to the Lord. The entire animal. Nobody ate of any part of it. And like some of the other sacrifices which the priests got to partake of. But this offering went completely to the Lord, and, and that was on purpose. It was a way for the, 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 the offerer to say, this is me. I'm really supposed to be on the altar, and all of me is here. All of me is dedicated to you. I'm all in. And as that offering went up in smoke on the altar, numerous times in Leviticus it said that that smoke would ascend into heaven and the Lord would smell it, the soothing aroma and be pleased by it. He would find it acceptable. He would, this was the way for the sinner to find acceptance before God. Through total lifestyle allegiance, I am all yours. And that's the language that Paul is using here, except that you see the difference. This isn't a dead sacrifice anymore. He's saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is a living sacrifice. Your entire life becomes a sacrifice to the Lord. And this, he says, is your logical service of worship. It goes on in verse 2 to say, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then, beginning in verse 3 and going really through the end of the book, he begins to outline what this looks like. What does living sacrifices look like in everyday life? And I find it very interesting that the very first example that he gives in this book, right after he's just called us to this, is a life of service in the body of Christ. Look at verse 3. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, and if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of, men, of mercy with cheerfulness. I find that fascinating. The first way in which Paul says that you can be living sacrifices in, in reasonable response to what God has done for you in the gospel is to devote yourself to service in the body of Christ. If you want to, if you want to be living sacrifices and that is your service to God, that's your worship to God, it starts in the body of Christ with you utilizing your spiritual gifts that he has given you to spiritually enable you to build the body up in love. That's how you worship God. I mean, listen, there there are so many ways that you can worship God on your own. You can read your word in the morning. You can pray to him. You can sing songs in the shower. You can do all that by yourself. You can't serve alone. Serving is by nature a corporate act You have to be here. You have to be with people in order to serve people. And Paul points that out just so simply and so obviously right from the start as he is showing how we become whole life worshipers of God as we live as living sacrifices. You show me a church that loves to worship God, I'll show you a church that's engaged in serving and performing the one another's in the New Testament. So servanthood is, it needs to be God-worshipping. Let's look at another one. Servanthood needs to be eternal-minded. God wants eternal-minded servants. We've already talked about the kind of motivations that um, we should have as we serve each other in the church. We should love one another, right? That's the foundational motivation of serving. And with that is buttressed the, the attitude of humility. We want to ha- be humble. We want to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but, but serve in humility, right? Those are the, the fundamental attitudes and motivations that we have. So in that sense, when we serve, we don't serve in the church in order to receive some kind of praise or some kind of reward. And that's absolutely right. But at the same time, we do have to recognize the fact that the New Testament says there is a reward for service. Look at John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, in verse 26, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone serves me... He must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, listen to this, the Father will honor 
him. There is honoring that comes to those who give themselves as servants to the Lord. There's honoring that comes, but it's not honoring that comes from man. It's not praise and honor that comes from people. It's praise and honor that comes from the Lord. Okay? Now turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and let's put this together. 1 Peter 5. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 1, Paul's exhorting, or Peter is exhorting elders to... Um, to shepherd the flock of God, to do it in humility, to, to not be motivated by money, to not be pressured into serving as elders, but to serve freely. And he tells them not to, um, to lord their authority over the church. Instead, they're supposed to set examples for the flock. And, and then he says, there is a reward that comes to those who faithfully serve as shepherds in the church. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is reward that comes to the faithful shepherd who is giving his life over to the service of the church as a called and qualified shepherd, okay? There is reward there, the unfading crown of glory. And then he goes on in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He dresses younger men in the church. He says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you, that's the whole church, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, if there's one attitude, there's one attitude that God honors, it's humility. He calls his people to be humble. And if there's one thing that we've understood from this, that is the attitude that buttresses real effective service in the church. And in that way, this, this, in, this serving is encapsulated, really the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what this is encapsulating. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be willing to put others first before yourself. So look at verse 6 of 1 Peter 5. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Once again, this idea of in the face of humility, in the face of as we humble ourselves, we see light at the horizon that says there is reward for that humility. There is honor that will come from the Father for those who serve selflessly. There is exaltation that comes to the shepherd who faithfully gives himself to the task at hand. And there is exaltation that comes at the proper time from the Lord for those who humble themselves. And what this is calling us to, and what this means for service in the church, is this is calling us to take our head and lift our eyes up above the temporal, above the here and now, and focus on the eternal. If you want to understand why you're not motivated to serve, why it just is a grind to get yourself to say, okay, I will do this, it might very well be that your mindset, that you are fixed on things that are here and now, When you think about it, to serve other people, what does it require of you? It requires your time, 
It requires your energy. It requires your money sometimes. I mean, all these things, you think about your time, you cannot get that back. You will not ever get younger. You will always be getting older and older. That's really depressing, but it's true. You can't get your time back. So if, think about it. If your mindset is on the here and now and what I lose out on, if I, ha- if I decide to serve people and I decide to meet this need and I'm thinking about it's going to cost me money, it's going to cost me time, I can't do that fishing trip now, I've got this, I've got that, this is what it costs me, you will never engage wholeheartedly in service because your mind's on the now. And what Christ has graciously done throughout his word is say, look up, pick your head up above the horizon and realize that yes, there is temporal loss for engaging in selfless service, but there is eternal gain. Be motivated by the eternal rather than the temporal. That is, that is one of the ways of effective service is to get our heads up above the horizon and see, have eternity in mind. Be eternal-minded servants and see if that might break the callousness of maybe some reservation you have about just jumping into ministry. Maybe it is that you're so focused on what you lose out on now that you are not thinking about what you gain eternally. You show me a Christian who serves faithfully, I'll show you someone who has his eyes focused off the temporal and on the eternal. And speaking of eternal, it leads to one last characteristic. We need to be God-worshipping servants, eternal-minded servants, and we need to be mission-focused, mission-focused. As we consider everything we've learned about in terms of servanthood and service in the church, we we have to take all of this in the perspective uh, of the fact that that serving is inherently countercultural. It is inherently upside down from the way the world thinks. The world thinks of me first and then others. Okay? In Luke verse, uh, chapter 22 and verse um, 24, Luke, um, he says, there arose also a dispute among the disciples. Here we go again. As to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. So here they are. They're jockeying for positions of, of greatness and power once again. This is a... This is a repeated pattern among them. They're thinking worldly, and and Jesus is about to bring out this reality to them. He says in verse 25, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. This is the upside-down, backwards, countercultural reality of the kingdom of God. The way this world works is the greatest among us are the leaders, the people who, are, who, have, who have demonstrated power and, and wield authority. Those are the great ones. And all everybody else are the lessers. They follow 
They're young. So if you want to be great in this world, you, you jockey for positions of power. You jockey for positions where you get to be served and you get to make all the decisions and you get to have all the power. But the way the kingdom of God works is the opposite. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you become like the youngest. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you become a servant. That's how countercultural this is. Now think for a moment about the mission of the church. Our mission, our calling is to make disciples. And how are we to do that if the way that we think as a church and we think as individual believers is just like the world? Let me put it a different way. If we want to stand out as a church, if we want to look unique and we want to look different than the world, how do we do that? We do that by completely acting differently from the world. We do that by being a church that's filled with servants. People who have the mindset, the upside-down mindset that to be great is to be a servant. That will make us look different. When somebody walks in the, the, the doors of this church and they sit down and they, they observe us as a church, we don't want them to say, what makes this place different, what makes this place unique, uh, what makes me want to come back is the music, or it's, it's the lights, or it's the building, or it's, it's this, or it's that. That's not why we want, how we want to attract people. We want people to walk into the doors of this church and say, there is something different about this people. They love God's word. They, they keep talking about this gospel and it must be real because they act so different from my friends. They act so different from the world. They serve each other. They're selfless. They served me as I came in. There's something different. I want to know more about this God that they have, this gospel that they keep talking to me about. That's what sets the church apart. Serving will never replace the gospel. I just want to make that clear. One of the problems of the 60s and 70s, the social gospel, was this idea of the gospel is just serving people. It's not the message. It's just the church going out and, and meeting people's needs. And that's not the gospel. But that can reinforce the message of the gospel by saying what we preach makes a dramatic impact in our life. So you reinforce the message through your service, and in that way, you become mission-minded servants of God. You show me a church that wants to reach the lost. We want to reach the lost. We want to fulfill our great commission. You show me a church like that. I'll show you a church that lives the gospel out in loving, humble service to each other. And in that sense, John thirteen thirty four, when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another, the very next verse he says, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. There's the mission, mindedness of serving one another in the body, that the world will know you're different. So what kind of servants does God want us to be? What what does God want Anchorage Grace to be? He wants our church to be gospel-enabled, Christ-like, leader-equipped, spirit-empowered, 
character-driven, God-worshipping, eternal-minded, mission-oriented servants. That's what God is calling Anchorage Grace to be. And some of you are actively engaged in ministry, and you need to hear this as an exhortation to keep going all the more, to press on, press the gas pedal down even more in, in your service, be all in. And, uh, and some have, are not engaged in ministry and, and maybe haven't for a little bit, and, and this is, hear this as the exhortation to jump back in, to, to commit yourself to a lifestyle, and for us as a church to commit ourselves as a culture of servanthood, where we look different from the world and we are pursuing Christ-likeness because you are never more like Christ as you serve because Christ came as a servant. Amen? Let's humbly pursue the Lord and pursue servanthood in this church and see what happens.